My name is John, and tonight we are going to be talking about sex. <gasps> gasp, gasp. <laughs> Why? Why are we talking about sex? I was hanging out a few weeks ago with a friend of mine uh, who doesn't go to church, but um, they were sharing some annoyances they had that they'd been reading the paper that day, and they were frustrated. And I said, why? What's going on? They said, I've just read an article that the Church of England has been telling people who they can and can't sleep with. I mean, why are they talking about sex in the church? Why is that happening? Or maybe another way to ask that question is, who does God care who you sleep with? Uh, why, why, why is that something that he should care about? Why is that something that should be covered in church? Why does God care who you sleep with? Because everyone cares who you sleep with. Our legal system is very, very interested in who you sleep with. Switch on your TV when you get home tonight and you will see tons of stories that are all about who people are sleeping with, their love lives, their sex lives. Love Island. Who's coupling up? Philip Schofield, after 27 years of marriage, coming out as gay. Finance Minister in Scotland, David Mackey, the next probably in line to lead Scotland, now having to resign because of sending grooming messages to a 16-year-old boy. Everyone cares about who you sleep with. And it's not just the TV shows and the newspaper headlines. Even our adverts are highly sexualized. Like, have you seen the M&M's peanut where one of the M&M's chocolates is caught having an affair? Have you seen this one? Even chocolates are sexual now. It's crazy. We are obsessed with sex. There's no issue that has more ability to intrigue us. Or to excite us, or to harm us, and cause immense pain, like sex. Now, all of us have been shaped by this in one way or another. And it's not just the sex lives of uh, TV presenters, or politicians, or porn stars, but each one of us has our own story. Each one of us has our own experiences, and we've all been shaped through what we've been through. Things that we've done. Things that have been done to us. Each of us will have a story. And tonight, here in this room, there'll be stories of experimentation, of confusion, frustration, of abuse, and horrible things. And this isn't just the stuff of TVs or tabloids, but it's our own lived experience. This isn't just a Hollywood story, but it's something that affects each and every one of us. All of us have a story of sex. And that's why we need to talk about it. Because the story you live in is the story you live out. What you view about sex... And sex's purpose and power and position in society will have a bearing on how you think, feel, and react to others. And the truth is, often the way we think and feel about sex is being shaped by others and deeply ingrained with us without us even realizing. And this sermon series is all about being in the world, but not of it. In the world, but not of it. In, not of 
It's about knowing that the story, uh, knowing the story that the world is telling. We're not doing kind of some escape from it, guys. We're going to build a bunker and just run away from all of it, and we're going to live together in a commune. No, that's not the message. The message: we're still in the world, but we're not of it. And to know what our response is to be, we know need to know the story that the world is saying. One, but two, we need to know the better story because there is one. God has a better story. And here's five things that God tells us about sex. So here we go, new community. One, sex is a gift. If you were an alien who had never been to planet Earth before and you came down to visit, it would take you all of about two seconds to work out that we are completely obsessed with sex. It's obvious. You don't have to be some PhD in some sort of kind of uh, human studies to work out that we as a society are obsessed with sex. Our news headlines, our magazine racks, our movies, our artwork, our jokes, our songs. Sex is God. It's a thing that we're supposed to uh, kind of seek in order to find happiness. If you just have this thing, if you just have this satisfying sex life, then you will receive the climax of life. So if our world says that sex is God, what does the church say about it? Well, to be completely honest and upfront, we haven't done a great job. Christians have often been weird about sex. It's been viewed as dirty and sinful. Priests in some part of church history and still in some parts of the church today have been required to be celibate, to abstain from sex because it's seen as an unholy or a secondary thing. Sex was banned at some points in church history on holy days because it was regarded as an unholy thing. Sex was to be abstained from on Thursdays Why? Well, in case you didn't know, in honor of Christ's arrest. No sex on Friday in honor of his death. No sex on Saturday in honor of the Blessed Virgin. And on Sunday in honor of departed saints. And of course, there's also no sex. I mean, this goes without saying, you'll know this, but no sex on the 40 days fasting period before Easter and Christmas and Pentecost. No sex on those 120 days either. And historian John Boswell has calculated that at one point, If you were to follow all of the church's laws, there were only 44 days a year when Christians could have sex. I mean, that's the state of how crazy things got. But it's not just ancient history. Christians can still be so awkward about sex. It's still this awkward, taboo subject. Maybe some of you in the room are squirming, just like, oh, why did I come to church this week? It's the type of topic that preachers often like to avoid. Or they speak about it in weird sort of ways. And I've had people even say to me, oh, that sermon, I felt a bit uncomfortable. You said the word sex six times in that sermon. It made me feel a bit uneasy. And teaching on sex to youth groups is ranged from saying nothing at all because it's just a bit, don't want to say anything we might regret. It's ranged from that to effectively saying sex is dirty and disgusting and horrible. So wait till you get married and then it will be the best thing ever. So close your legs and say your prayers. I spent a year at a Bible school. This was with adults. This was uh, back before I went to university. I spent a year at a Bible school 
where we were not allowed to hug people from the opposite sex front on. We were only allowed, this was a genuine rule that they told us in our opening week, that you could only hug people from the side. Because we all know what happens when you hug someone from the front. Whoo, crazy. That's a genuine thing. This is grown adults, Christians. So what does God say? What does God say? Now this might be really, really obvious, but it definitely needs repeating. God created sex. God created sex. It wasn't some mistake. He didn't make Adam and Eve, and then one day they were kind of walking around in the garden, and, and Adam gets a bit closer to Eve, and he's, God sat in heaven just like, Adam, no, why, why are you touching that? No, 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 I did not think that would fit in there. Adam, stop, do, no, no, no. God created sex. And if maybe even the thought of, of, of kind of God being involved in that makes you feel uncomfortable, then it shows you just how far we've missed the point of this gift he's given us. It wasn't some cosmic accident. Your sexual organs and your desire for sex isn't a mistake. It wasn't some cosmic catastrophe. God made us sexual beings. And God made sex as a gift to be used in its right context. A gift. Sex isn't gross. It isn't God. But it is given to us by God as a gift for our good. First, sex is a gift. Secondly, sex is proclamation. Now, a video created by the Children's Television Workshop for sex education classes in schools describes sex as this. Something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. Something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. Do you notice anything missing from that description of sex? Anything missing in there? Any mention of love or relationship or commitment? In that description of sex that children are being taught is our modern day understanding of what sex is. Is there any mention of the possibility for creating children? Ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the way in which we um, view sex has drastically changed in this nation. Changing attitudes plus easy access to contraception has meant that everything is very different in how we view this topic. Sex is no longer attached to childbirth. It's no longer attached to commitment. It's not even now, in 2020, attached to male and female. And arguably, this definition of sex being something done by two adults will quite soon be out of date. Because if love is love, then why two adults? Why not three or four? And we see the rise of polyamorous relationships and the normalization increasingly. Now, the advantage of these redefinitions of, of sex and sexual norms, it has to be said that it has led to a lot of the shame that was attached to those who were outside of what was considered to be the right thing. A lot of the shame that people carried often throughout their lives, a lot of that has been taken away. The flip side is that it's reduced sex to a purely physical act. It's just like what you do when you're hungry. When you're hungry, you get a sandwich. When you're thirsty, you get a drink. 
when you're feeling aroused, you have sex. And if that doesn't work out, well, maybe hop on Tinder and see if that will hook you up. And if all else fails, there's always masturbation. And this is strip sex from any emotional or spiritual dynamics. And despite this widely accepted definition of sex, one that if you were to go onto the streets of Sidcup would be the one that many would tell you, despite this widely accepted redefinition, deep down, we know that having sex is not just like any physical act. It's not. We know that having sex isn't like just having a glass of water. See, if someone pressures you into having a drink, or if someone pressures you into buying something, it doesn't feel good, doesn't feel great, but that wears off. But if someone pressures you into having sex, it has devastating consequences. We know that. It's not just some physical act like any other. It impacts us far more deeply. The damage that unwanted sexual encounters have is unparalleled. Despite what you'll hear on the streets of Sidcup, it's not just a physical act. It touches far deeper than the physical. And it's supposed to. Sex isn't supposed to be merely about recreation, about play, about pleasure. It's about proclamation. It's about proclaiming a message of something far bigger than itself. When God created sex and marriage at the beginning of humanity, he said this. In Genesis 2.24, on the first pages of your Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Ephesians 3.31, the Apostle Paul quotes these verses from Genesis and comments this. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying marriage is a picture of Christ, of Jesus, and his people, his bride, the church. And Paul explains that, yeah, it's kind of a mystery. You kind of, okay, I'm not not fully sure how this works, but I know it's profound because it represents the greatest love story in history. It's the story that is the thread throughout the entire human story. It's the story of Jesus' love for his people. And in the context of the commitment of marriage, the husband and the wife unite emotionally and spiritually and physically. Their compatibility, their sexual compatibility is not based on having good technique. It's not about being compatible in that, you know, yeah, you've, got, you've read the books, you've read the magazines, you know how to do it well. No, it's not based on technique, but it's based on their covenant to one another, their promise, their vows. It's why statistically married couples report greater satisfaction in their sex lives because there is a safety in knowing the person isn't rating your performance to decide whether to stay. And there's a pleasure in knowing that you're pleasuring the one who you love and loves you. Sex outside of marriage makes a promise it can't keep. See, when, you, when you're having sex, you're saying, all I have is yours. You can have all of me. I don't hold anything back from you. 
But when done outside of that lifelong covenant and commitment, your heart is saying something very different. See, your body is saying, I'm all yours. But your heart is saying, I'm all yours and unless I change my mind or something better comes along. Or maybe it doesn't work out. Sex outside of marriage makes a promise it can't keep. And God's design for sex is that its rightful place is in the context of marriage, the context of a lifelong covenant commitment. Through richer, through poorer, through sickness and in health. And this view of sex only makes sense when you understand the bigger story. The reason that the people of Sidcup don't maybe understand this message is because they don't understand the bigger story. What's going on behind the scenes? And this view of sex may not be the norm in 2020. It might be offensive in 2020. But it's the story that's been in place from the beginning of time. It hasn't come and gone with fads. This is the story of God. The story of sex from the creator. And whatever happens in our society, it will still be his plan for sex. And no matter how much we try to trick ourselves into believing otherwise, sex isn't just a physical act. And the one who created sex is the one who understands it. You would expect the creator of something to know how it works. And he does. He knows how it flourishes, how to get the best out of it. And how it's not just recreation, but it's proclamation of a better story. And this is very much linked into the next part. Our bodies are temples, not playgrounds. Our bodies are temples, not playgrounds. Let me ask you a bit of a philosophical question. Hopefully your brains are still engaged enough to do a bit of philosophy. If you're just a clump of cells resulting from an accidental explosion at the beginning of time, what makes you any more or less valuable than, say, a mosquito or a thornbush? What gives you any more value, just as a clump of cells like them? What gives you any more value than a mosquito or a thornbush? See, such a belief that we are just a meaningless clump of cells leads logically to a belief that bodies are purely physical, not spiritual. We're just physical beings. Now, when a belief of bodies as being purely physical meets a belief of sex as purely physical, then logically we're led to treat our bodies as playgrounds, something we use to experiment with, to play with. And when we reduce people to being purely physical beings... It opens the door to degrading actions. When we reduce people to being purely physical beings, viewing porn makes complete sense. These images of bodies on our screens become no longer people, but parts for our pleasure. And this story we've been sold that so much of our society believes dehumanizes the person. This is what Pope John Paul II said on it. Powerful quote. Pornographic images reduce the person being lusted over to body parts only. There is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, and this is powerful, the problem with pornography 
It's not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. It's not that when you're seeing Paul, oh, you've seen too much of that person. No, you haven't seen nearly enough. Porn is fantasy. It's not a true story. It's why if you've ever looked at it and if you've had an addiction to it or you've just kind of dabbled in it, you'll know that regularly afterwards there's this kind of hollow and empty feeling. Because you've kind of seen everything. But at the same time, you've seen nothing. We enter into this illusion and subconsciously believe for a moment that what's happening is real. But the reality is that we are having intimate experiences with pixels, not people. So why so many men are now struggling to have sex with real women? Because the real story, the real life story, doesn't match up to the one they've seen on their screen. The way women's bodies look and act doesn't match up with the story they viewed over and over and over again online. And so it's hard to enjoy the real thing. That's why studies are now showing a stark correlation between porn usage and erectile dysfunction. It's the power of story. The story you live in is the story you live out. But there's good news. There is a better story. The true story of our bodies is far more beautiful. God says in Genesis 1.27 that we are made in his image. We're in his likeness. There is an infinitely valuable divine element in each of us, in each and every one of us. It's why we are to care for our bodies and treat them with love and respect and modesty. And know that we are valued whether or not we, forget, we fit into society's norm of what beauty looks like. We are valued however we look. This view means that we must not take advantage of others through force or harm them with degrading actions because they are fellow image bearers, not just clumps of cells that were the result of some cosmic explosion at the beginning of time. They are people precious to God and made in his image. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, it says this. Do you not know? Have you forgotten? Have you got so used to what society is saying? Have you forgotten? Do you not know that your bodies, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, the living God who lives in you, whom you receive from God, the Holy Spirit who dwells amongst you? You are not your own. You couldn't probably get more controversial a statement in 2020 than that. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. As believers, we view our bodies not as playgrounds, but as temples. Filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The most precious thing that anyone could be kind of made of, that can have inside them. Far more important than your figure, than your popularity. Any of those things, you are filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer. And we are valuable because we were purchased at the highest price. How much are you worth? You're worth the blood of Jesus. The most valuable thing that there is was paid for you. 
And so we're no, no, we're no longer our own to do as we wish. It's not just my truth, I'm living from what I want and, and I'm going to define the rules. No. Instead, we live for something higher. And our bodies are for worship. We're living part of a bigger story. A better story for sex and human flourishing. Our bodies are temples, not playgrounds. Fourth, intimacy is communion. Recently, I watched a video of two people talking about marriage. And they were being interviewed about their sex lives. And rather than say the word sex, they kept saying intimacy, which is probably what a lot of you wish I was doing tonight in preaching or just saying some other words because you're like, I've never heard someone say the word sex this many times in church. I'm never coming back. (laughs) While this couple were being interviewed, and they were obviously trying to keep it PG, so instead of saying sex, they kept saying intimacy. Now, don't you find that interesting? That as a society, we have now made intimacy synonymous with sex. They're interchangeable, those two words. Isn't that interesting? What does that communicate? Well, uh, society, our story is pretty obvious. If you want to experience intimacy, the greatest thing there is, you need to be in a fulfilled sexual relationship. That's how you experience it. Sex is the key to happiness, to fulfillment. And so not getting sex is the worst thing possible. Has anyone here ever heard of the film 40 Days and 40 Nights with uh, Josh Hartnett? Has anyone ever heard of it? A few few ashamed, like it's a bit of a chick flick. Jez has seen it. I'm proud of you, man. I'm proud of you. 40 Days and 40 Nights. Now this encapsulates our culture's view of sex so well. And the film's tagline is this. You might be able to read it on the top right of the poster. So good. This is it. Here we go. One man is about to do the unthinkable. No sex whatsoever for 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. What a man. 40 days, 40 nights, no sex. I assume at some point he must jump off a bridge. That is unthinkable. Let me say this loud and clear. This is something you definitely won't hear on BBC News. This is something you won't hear in the cinema. This is not something you're going to read about in Cosmopolitan. And you're probably not going to hear preached about in too many churches either. We don't need sex. We don't need sex. We can live without it. You can have a great life without it. I'm 33, I've never been married, I've never had sex, and I enjoy my life. I've never caught some virginity virus. I've never wanted to end it all because I'm just like kind of waiting to explode. No, you don't need sex. Despite what the films might say, despite what you've been led to believe, you can enjoy life without it. Jesus, the most complete human being who ever lived, Never had sex. Paul, the one who was to be a a picture of what a a kind of a missional life looks like for us and for the rest of time. He lived as a celibate man. And many have done so throughout human history and had satisfied and fulfilled lives. They didn't just sit at home every night crying themselves to sleep. We don't need sex or marriage. 
What we need is intimacy. It's why you can be married and still lonely. In fact, some of the most lonely people I know are married. It's why some of the most sexually active people are the most lonely. Because we don't need sex or marriage. What we need is intimacy. It's what we need, what we want at our deepest. We want to know and be known. To know others on that close level and to be known in all honesty and authenticity. We want that closeness, that commitment, that friendship. That's what meaningful, life-giving relationships look like. And that's not something that's just reserved for sexual partners. Sam Albury says this, that our culture imagines that intimacy occurs only in the context of sexual attraction goes to show how little our culture actually understands and really experiences true friendship. Our problem isn't that we're not having enough sex. Our problem is that we haven't experienced true friendship. It's why if you come to Six O'Clock Church, you'll notice here, and you might even think about the, the name of our church. We talk all the time about community. We talk about friendship. We talk about being family. In fact, it probably gets boring sometimes we talk about it so much. It's why we encourage community and run social events and weekends away and all-together meetings because this is so central. It's why we teach about friendship and encourage people not to flake and to be consistent and to cry with those who are crying and laugh with those who are laughing. The family of God for me has meant that as someone who's never been married and never had sex, that should fit into the category of being lonely or a little bit odd or feeling like I miss out. I've not felt lacking I've not felt like I'm second class, that I've missed out in life. The family of God has done that. That's where I've experienced love. The family of God has helped me to know intimacy. Friendship is amazing. It's so powerful. And it's so important. But I have to add this. All of my friends, every single one, is like me. They're imperfect. They're imperfect. And that's why as Christians, knowing that we're loved isn't ultimately based on how our friends or spouses act towards us. Instead, it's based on knowing we have a Father in heaven who is crazy about us. He delights in us. He loves us. He's never going to flake on us. He's never going to give up and be like, you know what, this person is toxic in my life and so I'm cutting them out. No, he will never leave you and never forsake you. He is crazy about you. And in him, you can know true intimacy. He loves you more than you could ever know. Praise God. Fifth, you can be free. You can be free. In our culture, the notion of sexual sin has vanished. If you're new to church, you might think this is one of the most outdated sermons you've ever heard. For someone to talk about sexual sin. We're now encouraged to express ourselves however we best feel. It's your truth. I've heard that phrase in the past week. I mean, there's so many ironic elements to that statement. But anyway, it's your truth. Live it out. 
If it's true for you, it's your truth, go for it, you're brave, you're proud, go for it. And in the words of Elsa in Disney's hit song, if you want to talk about earworms, this is one of them. Let it go. What's the lyric? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No rules. That's old school. That's, that's our parents' generation. We're free now. No right, no wrong, all blurred lines. I'm free now. That's great. Thank you, Elsa. Many would say that the church, on the other hand, hasn't been that great either. It's made sexual sin to be the worst of all. Perhaps you've been sitting through this whole talk and you're being like, you're saying all these comments about culture, John, but I've lived years of my life feeling hurt and damaged by things that Christians said to me. In some ways, it can feel like sex has become the unforgivable sin if you don't do it exactly how God says. And in doing so, it's left people feeling ashamed and dirty and unwelcomed. If the world has said that sexual sin is nothing, that it doesn't exist, then maybe the church has given the message that sexual sin is everything. So what would Jesus say about all of it? It's usually a good place to get to. Well, there's one story that encapsulates where Jesus stands just on this issue, on sexual sin. One that answers the question, is sexual sin the worst thing ever or no big deal? And we read it in John 8, 2 to 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came out again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, they dragged a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This woman's been caught in the act. She's been caught in the midst of adultery. Now that's not a good time in 2020, but back in Jesus' day, you could be executed for such an act. And at the feet of Jesus lies this disheveled and bloodied and ashamed woman knowing that she could be on the edge of losing her life at any second. She knows that her life is in Jesus' hands. Now this is absolute gold dust for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders. It's just worked out so perfectly. This is the kind of scenario that they were dreaming of happening. See, they detest how popular Jesus has become. You might think Jesus is unpopular and controversial in 2020. Well, these guys hated him. They hated what he stood for. See, he didn't keep in line with their traditions. And to make it even worse, he started hanging out with people who were unclean and unpopular, like prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers, the people you're trying to avoid if you wanted to be a godly person in their eyes. And yet doing that, Jesus is becoming crazy popular. But finally, their prayers are answered and they found a trap that Jesus will have no chance of getting out of. See, here's his dilemma. Either Jesus lets the woman go and say, hey, look, guys, come on, chill out, chill out. It's not that big a deal. If he does that, then they can say, wait, you you claim to be a religious leader and you disregard the law of Moses. 
Okay, great. So you've got no credibility. Or he says, yep, you're right. Law of Moses says it. I'll throw the first stone. And then his image of being this kind and compassionate Jesus, this leader who loves, is completely shattered. He's trapped. Either he's unrighteous or unkind. And the crazy thing about this moment, see, we all have decisions to make, but Jesus knows in this moment, his response will not just change this one woman's life, but will change the lives of women and men for generations to come who will read this story. What he does will have ripples that will last for eternity. So what does he do? Verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now this is profound. What does Jesus think of those who, first of all, who think they're better than this woman, the Pharisees? What does he say to them? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What he's saying is there is no one amongst you. There is no one who can say they are without sexual sin. There's not one of us. Not one of us can say that we are without sexual sin. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in case we didn't get this, made it completely clear. In Matthew 5.27, he says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, I'm about to raise the stakes because I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus said, even when you look lustfully at someone... The same root sin as adultery is within you. So you can't say, oh, I'm better than that woman caught in adultery. No, that same root is in each and every one of us. Me, you, all of us. All have sinned sexually and fallen short of the glory of God. We've lived outside of the creator's boundaries for sex. So does the story of the woman caught in adultery show that God now no longer cares about who he sleeps with? You could say, well, it looks like Jesus is pretty chilled about all this stuff. Is it true that Jesus came to abolish the boundaries? That Actually, he's the kind of liberal, progressive God who's going to kind of reshape how we view sex. Perhaps Jesus is the kind of version of the Old Testament God. Or maybe Jesus is the, the you know, God the Son is a bit more relaxed than God the Father. No, Jesus is God. He's part of the triune deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he, like Father and like Spirit, detests sin. He's no different. He doesn't have a different view on sex than God the Father. So here's the key question you might want to ask. How 
if he detests sin, can he let this woman go free? How is that possible? How is that just? How is that fair? How can he forgive her of her wrongdoing? Because that feels unjust. It feels like it's no big deal. How can he ignore the death sentence? Because he didn't. He didn't. Jesus took the woman's place. He took her sin. He took on her death sentence. On that cross, on his shoulders, he took her adultery. And in that moment, as the cries of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him were ringing, there was no one who came to save Jesus. In fact, he stayed silent. The Pharisees didn't walk away. The executioners didn't leave. Jesus was nailed to a cross. And in that moment, he took on that woman's adultery on his shoulders, on that cross. And in that moment, he took on him, on his shoulders, on that cross, my lust, my sexual sin, and your lust, and your sexual sin, was put on him. Every sexual sin any one of us has ever committed. See, the scandal of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that each of us, can bring every sin, sexual and otherwise, to the foot of the cross. Everything we've ever done. And he won't, re- he won't reject you. He won't condemn you. He won't shame you or throw stones at you. No, he will lift you up like he did with that woman. Instead of shame, you get grace. Instead of separation from God, you are brought near. You might tonight think, yeah, you say that, John, but you've You've kind of, you know, you haven't lived what I've lived. I've done things that could never be forgiven. Things I could never tell anyone. The scandal of the gospel is that no one is too dirty to receive grace. Not one. Jesus is the great redeemer. He specializes in making all things new. In wiping slates clean. And you know what? For others here who have listened to this talk or maybe heard the story of the woman caught in adultery and you think this is a message for others and you're too proud to admit that you need forgiveness, just like the Pharisees did, just like I have done in my past. Well, the good news for you is that Jesus can forgive you as well. This is life-changing news. When we truly get this, it leads us to changing our lives. We can't stay the same. Look, how did the story end in verse 10? Jesus stood up and asked a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Go and sin no more. Live in light of what you've seen. Live in light of what you now know. Live in the light of the grace you've received. Now, how strange would it be if that woman, after that experience, had just gone back and continued her affair? It just wouldn't make sense. It would be such an odd thing for her to do. 
Yet how often do we see the grace of God and then continue on like we've never experienced it? When you truly know, when you truly understand that you've been given a fresh slate, that you've been washed clean, you've been forgiven and free, you want to live a different story. You say, look, I might still be living in the world, but I'm not part of this world anymore. I might still hear the stories every day on the TV and on my phone, but I'm not living that story anymore. I'm part of a better story. That's what defines me now. I'm not conforming myself to the standards of this world. No matter what anyone thinks, no matter what they might say about me, my eyes are fixed on someone else. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says this, He, Jesus, bore, on, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on that cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, he took our sins. I mean, it's so unfair. He took our sins and gave us Righteousness. He took it all. By his wounds, we are healed. And our response in light of what he's done is to die to sin, not to flirt with sin, not to say, I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of redefine my own Christianity in line with God and my sin. No, to die to sin and to live in righteousness. So here's the key question. The key question of all of this. What story are you living in? Not your parents, not your mates, not your community group, not your colleagues. What story are you living in? Because the story you live in will be the story that you live out. Now the world, don't get it confused, the world is presenting you with a story that sounds very appealing. But when you scratch beneath the surface, it's baseless. It's hollow. Look at our society. Has it brought us the joy we hoped for? But Jesus invites you to a better story. One of intimacy and dignity, of community and freedom and love. True love. It's unparalleled. It's unrivaled. It's beautiful. Because it's the story of sex and the story of love written by their creator. There is a cost. There is. But it's so worth it. Any cost is worth it. It's not popular. It's not popular on the streets of Sidcup. But it's far better than any story, anything this world has to offer.